Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing is set correctly. Hey everybody, welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing is not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey folks, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to to check us out and to listen to us. Uh, if you've listened to us before, welcome back. And if this is the first time, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this show. Uh, I've got a, a guest on, uh, Jane Strong, and, uh, and Jane will uh, talk about her organization and herself in a little bit. I think that uh, Jane and I, you and I, have uh, you've been following the Headspace and Timing blog for nearly a year, actually. Um, and, uh, and, and have been really interested in, in some of the stuff that we're trying to do. And so it's, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Dwayne. I've been enjoying it very much. And, um, you know, both as someone who is always interested to hear and learn more about the dilemma uh, that, that returning warriors face, but also the, the, the approaches that you um, – take to describing these things, I think are unique and um, seem to me like veterans can understand it as well as mental health providers. And it just seems to be a, a reach a great breadth of, of uh, audience. It would seem to me like it does anyway, that it's, it's pretty, it's pretty broad and deep at the same time. I appreciate that. It's uh, it's really what uh, you know. What we're trying to do is just uh, get the word out and, and have the conversation, and uh, right. and you've been a part of that conversation, and and I'm really glad that you reached out and, and wanted to share the the story of what you're doing uh, with the listening audience, which is really the same thing. Is it's you know getting it outside of the realm of things that I don't know and and things that are kind of weird and and kind of unknown, uh, and helping veterans understand a little bit more about you know what what we do. Uh, what I do as a mental health professional, what you do. So right. um, I'd like to hear a little bit about yourself, 
uh, and then maybe uh, what uh, what you're doing with the Equus effect. Okay. Um, well, we work with horses and veterans to help vets um, come home and to make that transition from war to peace that is seems to require a village. And also uh, what I mean by that in a way is not so much a whole bunch of people, but maybe some different lenses through which to look at and address some of the issues that veterans face coming home. So we do that, we do that, we happen to do it with horses. And we know that there are many other ways to, uh, to, to tackle this, so to speak. But we feel that uh, experiential learning, meaning learning through the body and allowing that learning to inform one's mind and mindset as well as emotions um, is a very successful way to, as we've talked about, accelerate the process of coming home because it's pretty difficult to ignore something that you've actually experienced yourself. Um, it's, it's different from talk therapy in, this, in the sense that it starts, it starts first with action and then with processing and then with making meaning out of what one has experienced. So that's, that's the way this works. And the horses are great, uh, are great teachers. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It sounds like it's, it's reaching the same destination uh, from a different direction. You know, um, when, uh, you know when, when individuals think of um, you know, traditional mental health counseling or therapy, um, you know, of course, there's misconceptions that, that everybody has about that. It's about, you know, Freud on the couch and, and, you know, talking about your mother and stuff like that. And it's really not that. But uh, you're right. It is coming at, coming at it from a cognitive um, and reaching the, the, you know, the embodied emotion, the behavioral. We'll talk into that. But yours is starting with the body, starting with the experience and then uh, afterwards bringing out the cognitive so how right. did you, you start to become involved in working with horses to begin with and then evolve into um, bringing it to veterans? Well, um, I was a, a competitive rider when I was a kid, and I knew that I loved my horse, but I had no idea that he had anything to teach me about how to be in life. Um, and so I, after I kind of went the, ran the gamut of, of learning to ride and then working my way up into competitive, uh, jumping and, and hunter jumper stuff is what it's called. That's the discipline. And I, after doing that for a while, I realized that I, I needed to do something besides be at the barn because that was all I did. And, um, no homework, no nothing, just, just, uh, did, did that full time, no matter what else was happening. And I realized that I needed to make my world a bit bigger and pay attention in school and get on with my life and try a few other things before I ever came back to it. And, um, I did that and I wound up, uh, going to, going to college in Boston and then went and I studied, uh, cultural anthropology. And so I was always interested in what motivated different types of people, different cultures, different subcultures within let's say the American culture. And, um, I was really interested in that. And I, I found that to be, um, you know, what drives people to do what they do and make the choices they make. So I already had a, a curiosity about motivation and 
and I went on to a career then in market research and uh, put that to good use because that was really what I was studying. And I did a lot of ethnographic interviews where I got inside of, you know, kind of underneath the choices that people made and what drove them to do what they did and what roads they didn't take and that sort of thing. Never thought I'd really come back to horses because I just couldn't imagine being with them unless I was competing. And then um, some 30 years later, uh, I met someone who had access to some trails over in Westchester County in New York. And I lived in Connecticut at the time. I still do. Uh, but I, I went on a ride with this guy and um, I couldn't believe that how how something inside of me seemed to kind of line up in a way that's hard to describe, but it's it's sort of like when you uh, play a sport and you're just in a zone that where, where things are working. And even though I was a rusty old equestrian, I, um, I was just kind of amazed at, at some notion that I, I got that, that this was a good thing. This, this riding was a good thing. Being in contact with another emotional being was really kind of cool and being, being interdependent with that creature, not really trying to dominate the horse, but being in kind of working in sync with this other being, sentient being, was seemed to be really good for me. And um, I thought that maybe it would be good for other people for some reason. I don't know exactly why that came into my mind, but I just thought that. And so I started to study this, this fellow who I had met who had the connection with horses, asked me if I knew about natural horsemanship, which I did not. I was a traditional rider. I didn't really ask my horse to anything. I told him. <laughs> and... Uh, so I wasn't really in relationship to him, except as an, I was in a dominant role and he was, I was hoping that he would stay in control. Um, but this natural horsemanship is more of a conversation where you still are working with horses and hopefully getting what you want, but you're doing it in a more um, approachable way to, from the horse's point of view and using more leverage rather than dominance. Um, and what we call actually using finesse instead of force. So um, I started to study that. And then when I watched people working with horses, trying to learn how to do this, I realized that I could actually see what was going on with the person when they were with horses. And I could see what was blocking them. And I could see how they were either overusing or underusing their body center or their heart or their mind. I could see that. And I can't tell you, I don't feel like I'm psychic or anything. It's just sort of very apparent to me when someone's with a horse that what's working and what's not working. So fast forward a few years of going to school to learn more about this and studying it. Um, and, you know, all my market research, looking for people's motivations and, and what got in their way of doing what they wanted or the choices that they wanted to make in their lives. I, I had studied a lot about the interior landscape of people. And um, this was another application of that. And it was actually more uh, beneficial than, say, doing market research, which was certainly beneficial to my clients, but not very beneficial to the people I was interviewing necessarily. So I decided I decided to pursue this and to learn more about how to work with people and horses and to help them get out of their own way 
is what I would say. Um, so that's what I did. I started to really study and, and went to school in Tucson to learn more about working with horses for the benefit of people. Um, and it was tremendous that, that people would come to do work with me who were, most of them had been through some kind of trauma and most were sort of stuck in a, I can't do this mindset or I'm always going to be this way. Or there's no, it didn't feel like people had the sense that they had choices in life and um, because of their past. And so after a few years of doing that, I, I just, I just somehow it came to me that, that veterans would be a tremendous way to apply this work. Um, and that, you know, that I don't see veterans in any way, shape or form as broken or sick. Um, I think that veterans who come home have, no matter what happened, have, have to go through a kind of a culture, have a culture shock coming back. And they get stuck. You know, they're stuck in a military mindset, which is perfectly normal. That's where they've been for a long time. And the reason they survived is because they were hypervigilant and because they had high situational awareness and hair trigger reactions to things. I mean, all these things that help a veteran come home don't work so well in civilian life. Um, so that was that was my sense of things. And I felt like the horses, because... Because a horse is a prey animal um, and because they are also very vigilant and they're always looking for what's what's beneath the surface, the the wolf in sheep's clothing, so to speak. Um, I felt like they would be perfect models for veterans to kind of both resonate with and also learn from because a horse, unlike a unlike human beings, doesn't doesn't escape from a predator and st stand around and tell stories. They right. go back. <laughs> and, and that's something in, in getting into, um, getting into your work with horses. And I know that you and I, when we spoke before, and I, I have a particular experience, um, that I'd like to bring up, but I, I find it fascinating your journey, um, as far as, uh, it just being a cultural, uh, cultural anthropologist, um, not sure if you're. Uh, have you heard of or, or, or read uh, Sebastian Younger's book Tribe? Oh yeah. And so, oh, yeah. what I didn't know is that uh, Sebastian Younger was trained as an anthropologist uh, primarily and not a journalist. Right. Um, and so, the background that you have in, in cultural anthropology, the military is its own culture. You're familiar with it. We talk about it a lot. Um, but then you took that and you used that to to sell people stuff, basically. <laughs> understand what what people uh and that wasn't satisfying to you and then you you use that understanding or that that discernment you have about the the fine tune you had about culture and you used it to um turn it into something that you help people with and and so right. um i i find that fascinating it's it's really interesting um and especially that you come at it not just i'm um i'm familiar with horses i'm comfortable around horses but I'm also comfortable around different cultures and able to work within those cultures. Uh, what are some of the cultural differences that you see with veterans compared to those who haven't served? Um, well, <clears throat> I think that veterans are um, what I would call have an incredible sense of uh, internal organization <clears throat> that is, is unique to them because of the training, um, because they're used to, being and I'm comparing them to civilians, let's say, 
is that uh, veterans are uh, highly trained physically to act as a, a unit and function with others, just like a tribe. Uh, a unit is a tribe that is interdependent and without which the individual would not survive. So there's an innate sense in a veteran that I am, I am a part of something greater, which is also why they sign up for the military is they're hopefully have some other centeredness in them and they want to serve a higher purpose. So I would say that the culture of the military is number one. Um, that's what it is about is hopefully serving some higher goal or meaning or purpose versus a child who's raised in our civilian culture, who's taught to compete with others in order to gain some individual uh, success and to play on a team only in the sense of being uh, only in the sense of winning some kind of recognition for oneself. I mean, team sports are great, but I think that ultimately we all wind up in civilian life looking out for ourselves and trying to make a, make a go of it and be successful on our own. And I think our culture in general really values individual success. Um, whereas I find veterans, anybody who's been in the military is, is very other centered uh, and very service oriented. Um, and an example of that would be if we work with a bunch of vets, let's say, and they come out, we, we see six vets at a time and we do all this experiential learning and we do a lot of, we keep upping the ante on, okay, let's see how well you can collaborate now and let's speed it up and let's get you going over some jumps with the horses in hand, you know, on the ground. We don't ride, but just the vets are, you know, doing these obstacle courses and doing all these things that we have them do. And I've had, I can't tell you how many times we've had vets here who've had two knee replacements and they're jumping over the jumps with the horses. And it's like, you know, and then the clinician, whoever is coming out with them from the vet centers or the VAs where we, where we source our veterans, they'll be like, you know, tell this guy to stop. You know, he's had two knee replacements. So rather than complaining you know, a veteran will push through things because there's something at stake or in store that is more important than his or her individual uh, needs or wants. And, um, you know, they'll never say no, whereas civilians often are complaining about things that are not right. I think veterans tend to be way more stoic. So we, we have to kind of slow them down once they get going. Um so I'd say, I'd say under other self, uh, other centeredness, um, service orientation, uh, and a real, uh, also a, a less than um, average access to emotional language. Um, I think that's probably true of the military culture. They don't specialize in, you know, how do you feel? <laughs> um no, I think those are some really good um, uh, observations. Um, even someone, I mean, and you've not served yourself, um, right. but but this is an example of someone that uh, you've been able to uh, you know, learn and, 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 and know and grow. And that's very accurate for me as a veteran. Um, you know, we're pack animals. In some sense, we're pack animals. Like we put stuff on our back, like you know, and carry yeah. uh, packs around. But but we're we're you know, if if we reduce it to that, you know, we're herd animals. 
much like horses, right? Horses, I get the sense, and I'm, I'm not as familiar um, with horses, uh, obviously, as you are, but um, herd animal, animals, other focus, looking to the leader of the herd, um, as you said, really always vigilant, other focused, but for horses, it's really, um, uh, really uh, for survival, perhaps more than, than emotional connection. Yeah. Um, the the idea that a, a veteran is um, is faithful is um, um, you know won't say no. I mean, I've, you can put a lot. You can you can hook a horse up to a, a heavy cart and they'll still pull. You know, they'll still do these things. You know, um, and and so they can bear much on behalf of someone. You know, so they're very hardy. I see that parallel. Um, and and then of course uh, horses not having the higher brain they don't they know how to name their emotion if they're anxious or they're skittish or things like that but maybe right. horses don't have a lot of obvious connection that emotional connection so I see a lot of parallels uh, yeah. between what you see in in, in military culture uh, and then what's what the horses are experiencing is that accurate yeah, it's very accurate, and they actually do. We share we share uh, the mammalian brain with horses. Um, what they don't have is the prefrontal cortex, so they can't speak. Um, they also don't judge, so they don't have language. They don't compare themselves to one another. There's all this stuff they don't tell stories. So, and they live completely in the present because if you're if you're a prey animal like a horse, which eats grass and lives in herds for safety. Um, there's a great interdependence and there's a lot of nonverbal communication that goes on with horses, which in the field or in theater, you know, you're going to have a whole lot of that going on. Yeah. When I was a platoon sergeant and I was uh, in charge of, uh, you know, the patrol and, and I'm on the radio, I used to direct my driver who sat next to me. Uh, whether they should start or slow down or speed up, I used to use hand signals. I used to, you know, tap on the knee or tap on the shoulder, or you know. But but it was it was just a matter of I was managing these other things, and then I would point or, or things like that. But that's very much so. And of course, we use hand and arm signals. But it was, and it was strange because I actually had somebody fill in from my normal um, uh, driver, uh, Sergeant Guerrero. Um, he came in and I started hitting him on his knee and he was like, what are you doing? Right. Cause he wasn't used okay. to it. But when we got that kind of symbiotic, you know, understanding kind of thing, yeah, no, I see exactly that. You're right. Yeah. And so that's right. That's so there's a lot, there's that, um, there is the same, there's a lot of resonance between horses and not, not, not the least of which is the fact that horses have carried us into battle more than, you know, before World War II, they were, that was it. You know, that was that interdependence and leaders like George Washington and Lee and, you know, Grant and all these incredible, and Alexander the Great and, I mean, Napoleon, all these incredible leaders were incredible horsemen. And so there was a need to, um, to communicate in a way that made sense to the horse so that they would go into situations that they would never go into. They hate loud noises. They would, they're, not, they're not warriors by nature. They are prey animals, so they're flight animals. They don't, they don't look for trouble. <laughs> they actually would, would prefer to run the other way, but they have big hearts, and if they trust the rider, or they will do anything 
for that rider. And as you say, they'll pull a heavy cart. They'll do anything to serve that um, that higher being in their minds because they know they're not the top of the food chain and they know that that it's, it's in their best interest to cooperate if they can. Um, so there's that. And then and then there's so there's our history, which has only changed in the last hundred years. I mean, before that, everybody, you needed a horse. You and I would have needed horses to get around or do whatever we were going to do. So we had to we had to regulate our systems um, in order to be with a horse in a way that worked because they're a thousand pounds. And unless you give unless you use a lot of aids that you can hurt a horse with, which people do, um, you you really don't have a chance against a horse unless you've got his cooperation or collaboration. Um, like any leader, I was just going to say, like any good leader, I mean, who would you rather work for? Someone who tries to get on your wavelength to motivate you versus someone who scares you or hurts you to get something done. Right. You know, and, and, uh, again, even in leadership, that transactional, if you don't do what I want you to do, I'll punish you. But if you do, I'll, I'll reward you. Um, that works in the very short term, but it breaks down very quickly. And I imagine yes. that. Um, you know, and, and I've worked, uh, one of our, um, one of our interns, um, who's worked here with my program, uh, she's worked with horses, uh, and she said the same thing is, uh, you can get a horse to do what you want to do very quickly by doing bad things, but it doesn't last very long. Um, no. whereas, um, you know, you can have much more faithful, uh, and we call it transformational leadership, um, yeah. uh, in the military. And so, in, in, and I know that uh, I think that when you and I talked last, I had an experience in, in working with this that was really interesting. That um, and so, a lot of the work that I do is with the local veterans court, and I, I uh, visited a local uh, organization here in Colorado Springs called Pikes Peak Therapeutic Riding Center, uh, and I was just checking them out. I was just, you know, somebody had said, "Hey, you know, maybe this is something for our veterans." So I said, "Yeah, I'll go down there," and it was a it was a nice morning. Um, I had come from one meeting, which I wasn't particularly enjoying that morning, and I was going to another meeting that afternoon. So this was really like a break in my day, um, you know, that I get to go hang out in the stables. And, uh, and as, the, uh, um, as the instructor there, she was showing me around, and we walked up to one of the horses. Uh, and I, of course, hadn't told her we had just met, so I didn't tell her how my day was going kind of thing. Uh, but as she, she was like, let's go meet one of the horses. And I went up to the horse. Uh, and as I walked up to the horse, the horse turned its head and shied away from me. Uh, mm. And she said, you've had a bad day, haven't you? And I, and I was like, well, how do you know? I mean, and it was curious. It wasn't a defensive thing. I was like, well, you know, and I explained to her, yeah, I had sort of a, you know, a meeting I didn't want to go to this morning, a meeting this afternoon. And she was like, the, the horse can sense that. Um, mm. that, that she was like, I didn't pick up that you were having any, you know, there was no aggression or whatever, but the horse is so fine tuned to that kind of thing, um, that, uh, you know, that, that they, I mean, it was almost like opposite magnets repelling each other, um, when he turned away from me. And then she said, okay, you know, just take a few minutes, calm down, recognize where you're at and then approach the horse again. And the ho horse was much more, I mean, and so that was just in a five minute thing. I saw that there was things that I could regulate within myself that would, right. um, that would change the horse's demeanor. So is that something right. that, that you've seen? Totally. Oh yeah. And, it, and it's not so much Dwayne that you have to be nice or calm. You have to be honest 
You just have to. So what you did, the thing that would have flipped the switch for the horse is you acknowledging that, no, I'm not having a good day. Wow, I'm, I'm running a lot of adrenaline or aggression or whatever it is that was going on with you. Just acknowledging it makes the horse go, now I know what we're talking about. Because when you don't, when it's when you're repressing something, then you're almost like a water balloon to a horse. You're like, what is this pressure? They feel it as pressure and they feel it as what we call incongruence, which is your insides are not matching your outsides because you were probably trying to act nice when you came in the barn, you know, but that isn't what was going on underneath. So what we really focus on with the veterans is not, it's not important to be calm or to feel good or to be nice. It's important to be honest and to be real. And when you're real, a horse goes, okay, now I know what we're dealing with here. And you're safe because a predator who is in the midst of, uh, let's say, a herd of zebras um, and horses are equines just like zebras are. They're just, they're just sort of half wild because they've agreed to stay where, you know, we keep them where we keep them. But the truth is they're still, their instincts are way much more at play than even a dog. Um, because a dog lives in our house and, you know, they're fellow predators. So we kind of know each other pretty well, but horses are still, you know, they're still pretty wild. And they, so, so when you go to, um, to meet a horse, if you are acting like you're smiling, let's say, you know, you're glad to meet this person, you see them, but you're carrying this other stuff underneath. To a horse, you look like predator, like a predator, because if you think about a, an, a lion or something out in a herd of zebras, when he's about, when he's looking for breakfast, his heart rate's going to be up, his muscle tension is going to be, you know, he's going to be pretty taut, and his breathing is going to be shallow, but he's moving really slowly because he's trying to stay downwind, he's trying to hide or mask his intentions or her intentions uh, so that the, predi the, the prey animals don't pick up on what's going on. But really, so the insides on a predator are not at all matching the outsides. And that's how a zebra will, and you'll see it happen every time. They run like crazy. They don't talk to each other about what's happening. Oh, did you see that lion over there? The outside one picks it up. It goes through the herd in something we call sociocentral awareness. It goes through all of their bodies. They pick up the tension or the, the message, just like you tapping your buddy's knee. You know, that information gets conveyed non-verbally and they all run, which everybody's seen. They all run. And then when they get about a quarter of a mile, they all turn to see if everybody made it or not. Um, so... That incongruence is what they're worried about. So the value of, to the horse of you being honest about, yeah, I've had a bad morning, or yeah, this is where I'm at. The horse all of a sudden goes, wow, okay, that's what we're dealing with. At least I know. I mean, and not, yeah. not knowing and, the content, but, you know. And I think that's interesting, and you're talking about that as far as, um, you know, going, you know, 150, 250 meters, however long, and things like that. Um, you know, I, I've heard someone once explain um, that a horse is this massive animal with a tiny animal brain. It's got a rabbit's brain in this huge body. Um, mm -hmm. And you said earlier about the horse being so in the present. Um, the horse, 
40 minutes later, once they're, uh, you know, half a mile away, they're no longer concerned. In that moment, they're safe. There's no threat and things like that. So they have the ability to, it's not even the ability to calm themselves down. They're not carrying the fact that they had a bad meeting two hours ago, right? You know, we very much with the, the cognitive aspects live in the past or live in the future. And we rarely as humans live in the present where we're currently at. Um, maybe unless we're having a conversation like you and I are, but but most of the times, you know, when we're driving, we're thinking about where we came from or where we're going to and what we're going to do there. Um, prey animals, I think, and, and horses specifically, don't have that. No, no, none of them do, because if they did, they'd be dead. If they stood around telling stories to each other about, geez, boy, if I hadn't been over by that part of the pasture, or if a rabbit said, well, I'm never going to that stone wall again, or gee, why was I there? You know, if I'd only made a left versus a right, they, they would be dead because they wouldn't be in the present for the next thing that came along. So the storytelling is not very valuable to them because it's not survival oriented stuff. It's what we do as human beings because we have language and we tell stories and we, we spend a, almost all of our time regretting the past or going over the past or worrying about the future or planning a conversation or we do, we spend a huge amount of time in that space that's not present. And the reason the work with the horses is so meaningful to vets and the reason I talk about it accelerating a veteran's process of coming home is because it's rare that a veteran has a chance to be or takes the time or the energy to be in the present which you kind of have to be with horses because they're bigger than us right yeah there's yeah it's I mean and, and that's the you know I'm a big guy but then you know like you said horses are you know, taller than me and, and they have weight and mass. And so, and, and you were talking about congruence, there is this, uh, for, for us as individuals, um, you know, we see this big massive animal, it looks very large, but it acts very small, it thinks very small, yeah. and it's emotionally yeah. very small. Well, emotionally they're big, but they're mentally they're small. They're prefrontal, it's that part of the brain that's about the tenth of the size of ours that's let not as developed, but their limbic system is huge. I mean, they've got a big heart, they've got a big limbic system, their amygdala, all that stuff is exactly like ours. What's not there is the, they, you know, they don't tell stories. That's the best way to put it. They don't do that. And because they need to be ready for the next threat. Just like when you're in the field or in theater, I can't imagine you spend too much time when you're in a firefight or if you're really in harm's way and in whatever way that you're spending a whole lot of time on the past or the future. You've got to be here right now. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And and as I was going to bring up is a lot of veterans are not typically in the present except for those very high threat moments. Um, You know, I explained to veterans that I work with um, is that the other systems of our body Um, we don't notice them. Um, you know, I was never hungry in the middle of a firefight. I was never tired in the middle of a firefight, you know, um, you know, I never had to go to the bathroom in the, when it, when we were in the midst of it. Um, you know, afterwards I wanted to sleep and eat and every, you know, and I just wanted to, you know, everything kind of came rushing back, but no, you're absolutely right. In those very high tension moments, um, being present was the only choice. 
uh, and then it was after we were that three miles away or, or you know whatever um, after we've uh, eliminated the threat or got done that's when you're right we would tell stories and, and, and tend to process and things like that and so it's it was rare for veterans to be in the present except in a danger moment and I don't wonder if that's a a reason why veterans are resistant to being in the present yeah it could be it could be that's right I never thought about that but that could be what we call it because my partner David and I went to somat to the somatic experiencing training institute so that's a part of our training with this work that that the term is called overcoupling so you you overcouple being in danger with being present that could be part of it. I never thought about that secondary gain that you get from, well, if I'm in the present, then I'm in danger. And that's not always true at all. That was true and can be true, but not always. So what we do with the horses is by building this resonance between the veterans and the horses um, through describing how they see the world and how they, they can sense heart rate and muscle tension and breathing from up to 30 feet away. That's pretty. That's a pretty good distance, but they need that in order to get a head start. So if you think you're fooling a horse when you're right there with them, you know it's ridiculous because they know exactly where you're at, and you might as well just be honest about it because they know something's up anyway. Um, so there's that, and then there's also the fact that that you can't, um, you know, you can't be. You just can't be anywhere else but with them because they're big and because they are they move fast. Um, and we we know that, you know, we know that that there's something in us that's beyond our prefrontal cortex that sort of knows that if I don't know where my feet are, I could get hurt. Um, I don't. And a dog, you know, a dog can sit on your lap. Uh, whereas with a horse, you're, that that wouldn't be very comfortable. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, and I wanted to, and and, and um, to, and not really to wrap up here. We got about another ten or fifteen minutes, but um, the the work that you do, you said you you work with your local VA in the vet center, right? And that um, that this is used in conjunction with traditional therapy. You use, um, right. you said that you have clinicians that come out and work with that. Um, how do you see the work that you do with the horses complementing traditional therapy? Um, well, let's say, so you're, you're a therapist, right? And you work with vets. Is that true? Okay. So, so the way the vet center, we work in where we have a good relationship with the VA and the vet centers in Connecticut. We're also, um, We've trained a bunch of uh, some of the vet centers in, down in Maryland, and we're, our interest is in, to, in scaling this program up to a national level because it's so successful and it's doing so well for the clinicians uh, who work with veterans. Um, and so what, what we would say is that if you were to, let's say somebody came through our five-week program, what you would experience as in your office when they come when they come back to your office, what would happen is they would have a vocabulary because part of our program is also a didactic piece where we should we teach veterans how to use emotions as information the way horses do. They don't get they don't say oh gee why does that predator not like me? It's that's the relate that's the way it is. 
So when they feel fear, they're looking for where the threat is and they take an action according to what they sense in the environment if it's dangerous. Um, if it's something new to them, they will feel vulnerable because they haven't done it before. They don't know what something is, so they'll resist it just like we do. And that's a lot of what you experience is resistance to treatment because they don't know what's in store. They don't know what's going to be revealed about them. And so what we do is we go through seven emotions, fear, vulnerability, anger, frustration, agitation, sadness, and grief. And we make it very accessible. We make it a lot of fun. We use film clips. We make it perfectly normal. And we link it to the horses who use all these things as information. And then so when they come back to your office after our five-week curriculum, they would have access to language. They would have access to their bodies which is, you know, in a different way. Um, they have access to kind of what's coming up for you. What is this, you know? So they, they would come back to you with an understanding of what we mean by, you know, settle down. You know, settle down and, and you know, let's do a couple of things to help you get into your body because we do that stuff too. We do a body scan. We do something we call joint warm up where we have them roll their wrists and their, all their joints to get their fluid into their, into their joints. So they would, they would know how to access their bodies as sources of information and also their emotions as sources of information. And they would have the language skills now to be able to talk to you in a way that you could get somewhere more quickly. Um, and one clinician from the vet center, who's a, a combat veteran woman who uh, works at the vet center here and is out moving out to Washington, I think she's going to do uh, uh, suicide prevention stuff out there. Um, she said that five weeks of this is worth seven months to a year of therapy. Yeah. And I think that's the, uh, as I'm listening to you, it's, it's a way to really shortcut, um, you know, and, and I don't say that clients are resistance, veterans are resistant or anything like that. You know, maybe they're unfamiliar, but, um, it, it's a way to really kind of quickly get past uh, a lot of that. So it's, it's good to hear. I think that there is that, you know, that, that even another clinician has said that. You know, I get the yeah. sense that a lot of people think that each of these, like, these are interchangeable. Like, if I work with horses, that's my therapy. That's all I need. Or if I work with, um, you know, whatever it is. But it's these, um, the the adjunctive work um, becomes all of what it, it, it is, essentially. Or this is the only thing a veteran needs. Uh, but it doesn't sound like that that's your approach. You see it as collaborative. Yeah, yeah. I think that we, we wouldn't, we don't really see veterans or we don't have as much success, let's put it that way. We have like a big aha. We'll get a big aha out of any veteran who comes here who experiences the work, and we teach them about how horses see the world, and we build this resonance. We teach them to connect. We teach them about communication and about collaboration. They can have a big moment or two or an hour and a half of that, but then really you kind of need the talking and the processing to unwind all of what came up with us and also to move forward from there because once people feel empowered, once a veteran feels empowered with the language skills and with the access to this 
emotional information then and with their own, you know, using their body in a different way to settle down or to or to bring the energy up if necessary to get a horse to do what you want. Um, you know, we those all those things need to take a lot of processing to make sense out of. And if they just come here, they're not going to have the chance to make sense out of what happened. Whereas somebody like you, we pass the ball to somebody like you who then unwinds it and processes it more and more and more because it's worth a whole lot of processing. Yeah, and I, and I think I really like that idea, and, and, and even from when I talked before, that it's, it's um, it, and as what you said from the beginning, it's different paths to the same goal, um, but, but everyone has that same goal, and as you said, has really helped the veteran uh, come back. I mean, because that's what it is, is, is when, when we were operating in combat, um, we were doing so as we should have and with the skills that we obtained, um, but we really don't make that shift unless we do it deliberately when we come back home. Right. Uh, and so uh, some veterans can do that uh, on their own. Some can do it through, you know, uh, talk therapy and, and things like that. And, and others may not be able to. So it, it's really interesting to hear that, um, that you have that ability, that you've seen that. So how long has Equus Effect, how long have you been doing this? Uh, we started in 2013, and we saw um, we saw 21 vets that year. Now we've seen over 200, and we've trained um, four other facilities to deliver the curriculum. And our goal is to go national with it because it is a it is a distinct curriculum. Nobody else in the United States is doing it exactly this way. Um, all interactions with horses, I think, are good for veterans. I think it's just a good thing. But I think we do it very mindfully and very deliberately. And in this in this sense of it being a curriculum, it's teachable, it's researchable, and it's repeatable. And if we can engage um, therapists with us to, to support it and to understand, it, it, it makes sense to any therapist we talk to about it, why it works. Um, and it just supports you and or whoever, whatever, whatever therapist is working with a vet on them in their efforts to help a veteran move forward in the way they want to in civilian life. Um, so that's so we've been doing it since then. And, and we hopefully by next year, we will see will have seen over 300. Um, and I'm, I think that our goal, the, the, the thing about it is that it's not an it's not simple to teach other people how to deliver the curriculum because people need to have a certain capacity to deal with veterans. Um, so one of the things we're considering is working with vet center clinicians who know the veteran population. I mean, even regular psychotherapists often don't understand the veteran experience. Um, so we're thinking of doing that pairing, you know, clinicians from vet centers and VAs with you know, these therapeutic riding places where the facility owns the horses and there's not a competitive environment like a show barn, we call it, you know, where everybody owns their own horse and treats them like Ferraris. <laughs> um, you know, we work, we, that's, I think that will be our model going forward because it seems to work very well where we're working down in Maryland with the, um, one of the vet centers down there two different, actually two different vet centers are working out of one therapeutic riding facility and the clinicians there are delivering the didactic piece of the, of the, um, of the work and the emotional information and the 
lot of the stuff they're delivering and processing it with the vets who are there. And then the facility know that they know their horses and they know about how to work with horses. They're delivering, they're doing the experiential part with the horses. I really like but, how it's the idea of um, you've got something and, and you've got proof that it works and the, the curriculum is there um, and that it's able to be replicated. But then um, when you say going national, I would imagine that um, that that it's in use in more locations nationally. Um, a, a, a colleague of mine, and, and I inter- interviewed uh, him, Tony Williams, back in episode 17, he said that this, um, the veteran mental health crisis, suicide, I think specifically he might have been talking about, it's a national problem with a local solution. Yes. Um, and, and getting on the ground in that local solution, um, you know, what... Uh, uh, this is a curriculum that could work as well in Colorado as it could work in Connecticut, but you're not flying out to Colorado. I'd love to to host you, of course. You know, it's beautiful out here. It's, I'm sure fall in Connecticut is nice, too. But, um, you know, but it's not something that you personally are able to take nationally, but you're able to replicate it nationally. Yeah, and I think what we're going to do is we will hopefully be out in Colorado and we're going to find a facility that will host us to do a training with, let's say, vet centers in a in an area that they could get to um, and have the facility host the training. And then we would train the clinicians how to do it and the and the, the host facility, you know, people there, how, to, how we work with the horses um, in a way that works with them. Um, we're, we're flexible in the model in the sense that we're not, it's not like my way or the highway, but the didactic piece and the wisdom of the prey, we call it to build the resonance and the collaborate, the, the, there are certain aspects that are kind of fixed. Um, but however, a facility thinks you should learn how to pick up a horse's hoof. It doesn't matter to us. That part is up to them. But, but our part is the, the curriculum itself kind of makes it easy to, um, to learn if you're a clinician and it's also easy to support as a clinician if you're not the one who's there, you know, with the vets. But, um, you know, yeah, we, we're hoping that we can have some, find some places to teach this in Colorado so that you would have access to it too. It's a tall order. Um, it's going to be a while, but, you know, because we do, my partner David and I have to teach it right now, but we may, we may do a train the trainer so that other people will be able to train people to do it too. So uh, if, if people were more interested in learning more about uh, the Equus Effect or contact you or contact David, how would they do that? Well, you would go on the website. It's probably the best way to do it, which is www.thequus.org. That uh, in, the, in the show notes... Um, we get the website and, and things like that um, and get that up there. And, I, and you have some videos there I, I saw on the website. Yeah. Um, and so uh, anybody who's interested in uh, other practitioners or clinicians or, or even veterans who may be interested that's in your region can go on there and just kind of see a, a little bit more about what you're about and, uh, and, and maybe reach out and get some, uh, get some assistance. Yeah, and we would love to talk to, you know, if somebody wanted to call me as well as it's 860 860- three six four five three six three eight six oh three six four five three six three if there's anyone who's interested in learning to become a facilitator 
a clinician or um, or to support the vets who a facility who feels that they want to help veterans, you know, make this transition successful um, and has horses or has a facility where you'd like to host one of these, one of our programs, um, for sure, we would love to know that. And so that we can be, um, we can, we can broaden our reach because we don't know all of who's out there who might be interested and we'd love to know so we can, we can get going. Well, hopefully this is uh, definitely going to get the uh, the word out there. Um, obviously, I've I've heard of the Equus effect um, uh, here in Colorado based off of our uh, previous communication, and so it's just a matter of uh, connecting people. And hopefully, this is a way that that more people will hear about the work that you're doing uh, and, and reach out and and uh, maybe partner with you. Uh, any yeah. last thoughts? No, just that, you know, I think one of the things that you sort of touched on, which I think is really, really important to us, is this idea of collaboration. Um, and that it's not all one way, because we're all individuals, whether you're a veteran, no matter who you are, you're, there's this individual aspect to things that something's going to resonate with me that might not resonate with you. And it's really worth it. If you want to change and have, for me, what's important is having more choices in life inside my own self and in terms of what works for me to get where I want to go. And I think, you know, to get over the stigma, get on with your life and know where your blind spots are and know where you're stuck is the, is the beginning of success, I think. I could have said it better myself, Jane. That's a, that's a, a great way to, uh, to finish the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. The struggle is real. Found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies, broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me, R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility, authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability. So there you have it, folks. Another episode of Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to changing your perspective on veteran mental health. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use the track Not Alone from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc's a guy who's trying to bring the discussions about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light and you need to check him out. Head over to therealdoctod.com to purchase the album and support the cause. You're not alone, veterans, ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone, but now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds overgrown. Up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies, broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me. R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility. Often in Tennessee, embrace my ability.
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.